from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Alicia. So um, uh, it looks like uh, we're doing quite a good job on our air miles, which I don't think is probably the best thing for the planet. But I guess uh, sometimes these things have to be done. Uh, Where have you just landed back from today for our listeners? I just got back from Stockholm. I was there for McKinsey's Green Business Building Summit, where I believe I ran into your CFO. Marco was there. Uh, and um, a lot of really fantastic entrepreneurs, but also investors. And then just there's some really wonderful McKinsey people that we work with a lot and uh, are just fantastic. So I did a half hour keynote at four o'clock in the afternoon on project finance, which sounds like a death march, but uh, everyone loved it. So it's very exciting. We're going to put it into a a white paper. So you'll be able to see it soon. Very exciting. I heard it it was very good. (laughs) It's good. I I hope so. Well, Marco's a professor in project finance at uh, the Johns Hopkins University, at Johns Hopkins. So, you know, from one professor to another, uh, yeah, I heard, uh, I heard, heard very good things. I, I think the thing he was saying, which maybe I, I'm not sure was so obvious, it's difficult in a speaker to notice, but his observation was that so many people actually just don't understand project finance. So while the press oh, yeah. will often cover the stories and lots of people say, oh, yes, project finance and oh, yes, the debt and oh, this, this and that. The number of people who've actually done it, who actually understand it, who can get into the mechanics is actually quite small. Uh, and so even though I think you were being probably far too polite and saying it was, you know, uh, 4.30 in the afternoon and whatever else, I, I think actually finding ways to break down what is kind of uh, something we talk about a lot, but people poorly understand and translating it into clear, simple messages, extremely important, especially for the energy transition. It, it, I mean, it was really interesting because it's, According to McKinsey, we're going to have to spend $275 trillion on the transition. And if you look at everything we're going to buy, it's heavy asset, you know, it's it's infrastructure, it's, it's a lot of capex. And we've got past 30 years of investing in Facebook, which eventually has a lot of server farms, but that's about it, right? I mean, it's really high tech, low asset investment, and people are very used to that. And that's going to have to change because project finance is going to be required for almost everything around the world to, to actually make this transition. And so I, I introduced the project finance angel, which I learned when I was in business school, which was before um, Fletcher. And it was like, if you wanted to do anything international in business, you learned about project finance. So of course, that's what all I wanted to do was international. So I um, so I loved the course, but everyone has forgotten the angel. Like that's how out of out of use it is that no one remembers it, except Marco, maybe. Um, so that was really fun, um, and we're bringing it back. But um, it, it was great, and I also even this is just staggering. I met uh, Prince Daniel, 
of uh, Sweden. And he listened to me prattle on about the Project Finance Angel for about 15 minutes and seemed actually entertained, which I think is some kind of fabulous acting capability. <laughs> yeah, but the Swedes are very passionate about this stuff. And I think it is, and they don't, and, and I think there is a recognition from their side that they need to get their head around it, right? Um, but it's hard. I mean, it is is hard for a lot of people to understand. The Project Finance Angel, I have a funny feeling I've been taught in class and I just was sort of trying to sort of scratch my head and go, hang on, do I remember being taught that or what that was when I was taught that? And uh, I'm now realizing I have to go back and look at all my Marco PowerPoints so otherwise I'm going to get in terrible trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. It'll be interesting. But yeah, he's the, he's the green prince anyway. He's invested in and interested in all of this... Uh, it was relevant. But green prints seems to be a popular theme, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, in the UK, we have a similar thing. I mean, you know. We have a green king now, though, not a green prince. Yeah. Well, actually, Prince uh, William is, is also green, so that's good. <laughs> you know what was interesting? So so just, just thinking about spending, because if you just repeat the number, the McKinsey number for global spending, what was that number they were saying? $275 trillion. By Between now and 2050. Uh, it's probably 2100 to be honest it's the the whole transition i think i remember uh, i can't remember i'm gonna get it wrong but someone like um iea or uh, one of the agent one of the international agencies had said five trillion a year needed by um five trillion a year through 2050 on energy transition to start making a move so you know that was what I'd kind of had in my back of my head up until 2050. But the reason for that is that, um, so I haven't been flying so much at the moment. I've been mostly stuck in a lot of presentations, but thanks to LinkedIn, and I realize LinkedIn is now a great source of book inspirations. Uh, I picked up a book, which I'm going to do a soft pitch for, um, The Material World by Ed Conway. Edward Conway, for those who have no idea who he is, Sky News presenter, the book is absolutely awesome. I cannot recommend it enough. If you work in energy and you haven't read it, you should read it. So it's, he picks six, uh, six minerals, sand, iron, salt, oil, lithium, and copper, and talks about the history of them and the importance to supply chain. But anyway, the bit that I was going to capture, because I think people don't understand this. So when they think about the energy transition in numbers, they really struggle with it. So we think about renewables as a big number, right? And we go... 300 billion a year is the amount that we invest globally in energy and infrastructure. You go, okay, that's a huge number. Think about how many wind turbines are being built, how many solar panels, all that sort of stuff, right? TSMC, which for those of our listeners who are less familiar, which is uh, Taiwan's biggest semiconductor manufacturing company, its budget period for three years on CapEx to build new semiconductors, 2021 over three years, do you want to take a guess, Alicia, what their budget is, CapEx spend for one company over three years? No, I, I, well, I mean, if I look at my own projects that we have planned, what the CapEx spend will be. <clears throat> so they, <laughs> it's, they intend it's to spend $135 billion in three years on CapEx, on new semiconductors for one company which to yeah. give you another way of thinking about the scale of how much we pay for that particular part of the global supply chain, this is the other number that blew my mind. China spends more money on importing computer chips than it does on importing oil. Scale of some of these numbers, though, I think are interesting because I think when we talk about the energy transition thing, I've realized is we always think it's big because we don't have a frame of reference necessarily for what we spend on everything else. But when you look at what we actually spend on everything else, you start to realize actually the portion of global investment we're putting towards this is actually 
even though the numbers are massive because they are massive in the context of what we spend on property on roads on airports on all these other items it is actually far smaller than people realize and that is a good and bad thing <laughs> a good thing in the sense of as a proportion of total spend it's not as scary as people think it should be but the absolute numbers right. are still absolutely staggering they are staggering but i always come back to the candle market in the united states is a 60 billion dollar market <laughs> just like really <laughs> paraffin <laughs> paraffin and a wick <laughs> and this is a 60 billion dollar market that is insane so you know we should we should try to get beyond candles i think <laughs> how about that that's the takeaway from everything about hydrogen we should get beyond candles um <laughs> well look why don't we um on that bombshell why don't we um start thinking about getting our guest on the show alicia do you want to introduce our guest for today I can, I can. His name is Tom Leinbarger, and he's the executive chairman of Cummings Inc. He's been at that company for about 30 years, working his way up, and the last 10, he was CEO. I think August of last year, he stepped down from being CEO, but is now executive chairman still of the board, and, uh, and he appointed uh, a new CEO, and she is supposed to be fabulous. I haven't actually met her yet. But he is still heavily involved in hydrogen, and he was also the uh, co-chairman of the Hydrogen Council. He just got replaced by the CEO of Linde as the other co-chairman. They do they change them every other year so that the one chair, chairman remembers. <laughs> so you don't uh, you don't have any memory loss between uh, between years. But he's a fabulous person, and and I think our listeners are, are in for a treat. Um, just just hearing very down to earth information about him and the way that he approaches uh, the company and the markets and people in general. But I think we walked away as pretty big fans. So let's, let's get him on. Tom, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast. We're really excited to hear about uh, all of your background, uh, obviously, especially the foray into hydrogen. But it would just be nice to hear a little bit about uh, Cummins and, and uh, your career there over 30 years. I know the last 10 as CEO, but, but 30 total going through almost every role, it would seem. We'd love to hear about sort of the up and downs of that and, and uh, any great stories you have, because I know that you're a fantastic storyteller. Yeah, I, as you say, I started at Cummins a long time ago, different decade, 30 years ago. And um, I joined right out of business school. I worked first in, in investment and finance uh, for Prudential Insurance between my undergrad and, and business degree. And then I really wanted to get back to manufacturing. I'm an undergrad engineer. I wanted to go build things. And my criteria for where I wanted to work was I wanted to build things that if you dropped them on your foot, they hurt. And so engines <laughs> clearly qualified. It definitely hurts if you drop a diesel engine on your foot. And I met some really amazing people there during my summer internship. I worked in the plant, and, and that was my only requirement for Cummins. If they, if they wanted me to come and work for them, they needed to let me work in the plant, and they did, which was really brave of them because uh, I was not necessarily as – an, as, as an MBA student, their, their first choice wasn't to put me in the plant. But anyway, I went to work in the plant, and I loved it so much. I loved the people that work there. And then I had a long career of job after job, each one kind of taking my breath away. And I think that's that's the perfect career where the first 
six months of the job, you're not sure if you're going to be in, you're going to make it, if you're going to be good enough. At least for me, that was uh, the challenge that I, I loved. And, and, and the whole time, I, I love the values of the company and the people at the company. So, yeah, as you suggested, I, I, you know, they spent the last 20 of those 30 years in executive positions, uh, some in, in the UK and uh, different spots in the US, and in just continuing to learn leadership skills. And I had amazing bosses. I, I think one of the, the unemphasized part of leadership is how important having bosses that show you how to do things, not just tell you, is. And I had two amazing ones, uh, the former CEO, Tim Solso, and the former head of uh, operations, Joe Loke, we both were just amazing teachers. So I, I feel like I just was able to build on things that they showed me. And so uh, I d- did spend my last 10 years as CEO in August. On August 1st, I was succeeded by uh, Jennifer Rumsey, who is amazing, uh, remarkably talented woman, and I think will be a leader beyond anything that I was able to do there, uh, which of course made me very proud of her and really ready to to go to the next step and so i'm the executive chairman now which is a much better job executive chairman you you get to be the chair of things and don't have to put in nearly the hours or the worry uh that the ceo does and so um she's fully in the job now doing a great job and i'm just making sure things are moving smoothly and 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 that's a great great position to be and i'm really proud of my career there and of the company fantastic yeah we're (laughs) really looking forward to seeing what she she uh gets going in the next several years yeah, and it's also just fantastic to have that little bit of a background. I mean, I, I guess something that um, really comes across in that introduction is kind of how proud you are of Cummins and, and the business and what you've built. So I guess that kind of feeds into my second question. I mean, this is a podcast about hydrogen. I guess we give that away in the title. And uh, Cummins is doing quite a bit in hydrogen, but you're doing it under a different brand, or at least recently it seems like there's a new brand, the Accelera brand. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to create as a separate brand brand and subsidiary from Cummins. Does this mean Cummins doesn't do hydrogen, but Accelera does? Do both do hydrogen? Do they do different? Maybe you just talk us through that a little bit. That's a, that's a great question. And so just two minutes of background. So the company is 100 years, 100 plus years in diesel engines. So Cummins was one of the 100 plus companies that started with a license from directly or indirectly from Rudolph Diesel's original design and it kind of the last independent one standing. So diesels have been our thing forever. But about 10 or or 12 years ago, I, we started the process in 2010. I, I'd say we were more active in 2012 and 13. We, we st- built a strategy for sustainability at the company or started building it. And that started, of course, by just looking at the climate change phenomenon. Our, my whole leadership team got engaged in learning about climate change and what it was going to mean both for us as citizens and for us as, as leaders of this company. And we began to build a commitment to, to do our part to reduce climate change. Because Cummins, you know, as a diesel engine builder, uh, we have a measurable effect on climate change in the world. So in my view, of course, is that companies like us have a, a higher level of responsibility to kind of find ways to solve that problem. And so we went, we set ourselves to, to that task and we came up with a strategy to say, you know, we, as, a, as a company leader, since it's not our company, we are managers there, we have to come up with a strategy that not only helps contribute to reducing climate change, but also provides sustainable growth for the company. Otherwise, somebody else gets the job. I mean, the, the, the investors are not okay to solve the world's problems, but destroy the company. So that's a jointly that's a joint optimization problem of some difficulty. And so we built a strategy that included 
finding zero carbon solutions from the technologies that were available in the market and that we had been working on for a long time, including hydrogen engines, hydrogen fuel cells, and batteries, and, and hybrid versions of all those things. And uh, so we started a process of uh, acquiring companies, building out organic development programs um, that sort of went along in parallel with our engine programs, including the internal combustion engine programs that would run on hydrogen and other other fuels. And when we built, when we started acquiring companies, one of the things, challenges we had is how do we make sure that these companies who have been working on hydrogen solutions or battery solutions since their beginning don't think, oh, I'm no longer, you know, my, my dream of solving climate change or working for a green company is now destroyed because I work for Cummins now, which is diesel. And what we wanted to do is instead be excited about the fact that this is a new new company and a company that has resources and connection to customers and markets that will help them realize their dreams rather than dash them. And that's a it's a fine line to walk when you're a big company and you acquire a small company that's nimble and excited about the technology they're providing you know, are you the destroyer or are you the, 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 the one who is actually going to help the company realize its, its objectives? And so we kind of, we protected these companies and we made sure they, they got to build as their own and got supplied, but we didn't try to make them come in in the first instance. So we, we managed these companies in this strategy department for, for, for several years. And the current leader of Accelera, Amy Davis, was got involved in leadership a few years into it and started leading some of these companies. And it was obvious at that point that we were far enough along on this journey that we needed to make a proper division out of it. Just leaving them as individual companies doing their thing wasn't going to yield a solution. It was good for development and making sure they didn't feel like they were being overrun it was bad for getting to a final solution that was actually going to revolutionize a big industry like transportation. We needed bigger innovation. We needed more resources. We needed more connection to the customer base that that Cummins has. So we started to integrate slowly, again, trying to manage this fine line between how do you make people feel great about this, but still get on with innovation. And the Accelera name and the Accelera idea of having a separate brand was not mine. It was Amy Davis's and Jen Rumsey's. And so they're the ones that really implemented this. And their idea was, I think, again, a sort of a innovation from where I st- left off. I, I had this nascent division. I think I was doing a good job of keeping things at least separate enough that people were still feeling like they could, you know, that they could be themselves and, and be connected to these really cool hydrogen companies and battery companies. And they came up with a way to kind of have both. We can be part of Cummins. We can begin to leverage more of the resources of Cummins, but we can have an identity that feels like a green company. So the the employees that work there feel like they're part of this climate change solving uh, company, and th- and that's what they did with Accelera. And again, it's it's early days, but I think it was a it was a, a brilliant idea. It seems like it's going well so far, and I think everybody who is at Cummins feels connected to Accelera in an important way. But those that are in it feel like they kind of still have the same mission and dream that they always had. And I'm conscious that uh, Patrick's got the next question, but people who are used to the show and Tom appreciate you're not are aware that I have a horrible habit of asking interim questions. So tell me off. <laughs> what I was only just going to say for our listeners is maybe be helpful to just explain what different lines of business are within Accelera. Because I think people might not be aware of quite how broad a range of things in hydrogen Cummins is doing. So that it's, context it's, might be quite helpful. It's a great point, And I should have started with that. Accelera has now in it an electrolyzer division, 
so machines that make hydrogen. There are alkaline uh, electrolyzers uh, and also PEM electrolyzers. We have we make uh, fuel cells, PEM fuel cells. We make battery electric powertrains. Uh, again, larger ones for trucks and commercial vehicles. All those three lines are inside Accelera. Inside the engine business, we make internal combustion engines that run on diesel, and we are developing, we've already launched platforms now that are ready to run other fuels, and we are developing the fuel systems and tank systems to be able to run on hydrogen, as for example, and other fuels which have either lower or zero carbon. Um, we've been running on natural gas for a long time. We've already run hydrogen engines for uh, some number of years, so we, we're clear we know how to do it. Um, now it's just a question of you know, implementing it in the market. And those two divisions run largely separately other than how they connect with the customer. So, Tom, Tom, following on from that, and obviously that's that's a pretty broad kind of profile of technologies under, under the brand heading, but, but particularly thinking about that, the, the internal combustion engine, the hydrogen internal combustion engine versus the fuel cell kind of pathway for mobility applications. How should we be thinking about these dual, maybe arguably competing pathways? Maybe, maybe more specifically, how should policymakers or investors be contemplating the roles and rollout of those different things? I guess my at, at 30,000 feet, my view is that climate change is kind of the existential crisis for our species. So solving climate change sort of sits as primacy position. That's the one that has to be addressed. And I think, at least my view of it is that we need all the solutions we can get, that we have to start making progress at a much higher rate. We, we just need to move. We're kind of, um, reminds me of one of those cartoon characters that runs in place for five minutes and then starts going. You, you, we can't run in place much longer. We need to actually deploy technologies that significantly reduce carbon for important jobs we're doing in the economy. You know, we also can't afford to stop running the economy. So we have to do both, and that, that requires solutions today. So I'm kind of a many solutions person. I think uh, electric powertrains will have a significant role in commercial vehicles, and it, well, just in all industrial and commercial solutions. And the, the challenge there is greening the grid and getting enough charge points and getting transmission and distribution lines, uh, which will be, you know, the, the size of the grid that we have today in the U.S., for example, will have to be duplicated, fully duplicated with all the transmission lines sited and everything. That is a big job to do. And I don't think it'll be done fast enough. It'll be done, but it won't be done fast enough for us to make the progress we need to make. Hydrogen, I think we also need a full infrastructure for hydrogen to be able to provide hydrogen for mobility, for commercial solutions, etc. And I think it also can't happen fast enough. We need to move fast. And fuel cells, I think, are a great solution, uh, especially when there are electric powertrains existing already for vehicles. Putting a fuel cell on there will give the vehicle more range than a battery probably will and lighter weight. So for high power solutions, I think that will be a better solution probably, but fuel cells aren't fully ready today. So I think hydrogen ice provides a way for us to start building out infrastructure, significantly reduce carbon, by the way. I mean, a huge reduction. And even if you have some level of criteria pollutants from, because you are combusting, it's very low, much lower than diesel combustion and other technologies. So I guess my view is hydrogen ice is a thing we can implement fast we can start building out hydrogen infrastructure because there's a demand on the road for hydrogen ice. So we should do it as a way to, to get going 
And then I think fuel cells eventually will offer better efficiency uh, for for commercial vehicles and other equipment over hydrogen ice. You never know because both innovations will be going once and they'll be competing for efficiency. But my bet is fuel cells will win. And then that becomes the eventual solution. So I guess I'm, you know, let's go for all and see what wins. But most importantly, let's start now. And I think hydrogen ice gets, gives us the ability to start faster. That makes a lot of sense. And on that topic of speed, how is Cummings looking to ensure that it can scale up to meet demand over time? How are you approaching scaling and, and uh, you know, making sure that your products are available as soon as possible? Yeah, it, it's a great question, Alicia, because we, you know, scaling is where the rubber hits the road. So right now we have technology and products available, as I mentioned, in electrolyzers, in fuel cells, in uh, battery, battery electric, and hybrid versions. That's a lot of. So we are essentially spending four times the R and D for one powertrain sale. If you, if you know what I mean, right. versus we were basically making diesel and maybe a little bit of natural gas only before. So it's a big R&D bill, but the R&D bill is nothing compared to the bill when you scale it. So what we hope to do is we hope to get each of these developments to a place where we understand which one's going to win in which market and scale that one, not scale all of them in all markets. And because in sense. our industry, it's sort of the, the way the, the market works is there's regional scale as opposed to global scale. Global scale exists in R&D, but manufacturing scale exists regionally because you, have to, you can't really ship an engine from China to the UK or whatever. It's just too much shipping cost. So normally we build in the region that we sell. So we, we could scale all those technologies as long as we were scaling them for a large regional market and that was the primary winner it'd be difficult to scale all four in each region of the world. And our hope is that's not what we end up having to do. But if we do have to do that, we'll, you know, then we'll raise the capital to do that. But our plan right now is to continue to develop along these paths until we see for each region, what is the winner in each market, what's the winner, and then try to scale that solution. We are, and I think as a, for hydrogen ice, for example, the scaling costs are much lower because we already have an internal combustion engine that's, that's why we built this architecture that's largely common across a diesel and a hydrogen and another thing. So the scaling costs go down. For the others, the scaling costs are significant. Battery, we'll have to build the battery plants. We'll have to build uh, you know, fuel cell manufacturing. All those will be significant. We're already on with scaling electrolyzers because uh, there is significant demand across multiple regions. So we're building plants already for electro electrolyzer production. In fact, it, those are as you know from the Hydrogen Council, Lisa, that, that is a challenge to keep up with demand on electrolyzers, especially the forecasted demand. Uh, the actual orders where there's money on the table, not as many, but the forecasted demand is quite significant. And the lead time in between there is not enough time to build plants. So we are building plants um, you know, with the, the forecast that these forecasted orders turn into actual orders to make sure that we're ready for it. And I guess that maybe feeds into another area, which is that, yes, we sort of know that it's going to be a big market. We know there's going to be a lot of demand in the future. But, you know, how do we get that confidence around making those investments in infrastructure? And then I guess also how do we use the existing infrastructure, existing people and existing skills to, to deliver on that without sort of losing people in that transition? So, you know, obviously the U.S., 
would argue they're doing that through the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's theoretically what it's meant to do. Is that how you see it from the Cummins side? I mean, how do you as a business feel that you are able to access the Inflation Reduction Act of support mechanisms? You know, and are there sort of, if you like, other carrots and sticks that probably could be offered that are not currently included within the support mechanisms you see that would help to accelerate your ability to address climate change? Yeah, there, there's been quite a bit of work done on this recently, and it's it's pretty interesting work. We got to review some of it uh, at the Hydrogen Council in Japan from McKinsey. And I think that largely, at, at, again, a high level, the framework is that we know we need these solutions, but essentially greenhouse gas or carbon emissions are an externality. Most companies don't pay, at least they don't pay the full cost to the society of what carbon emissions cost. That That's kind of an obvious economics point. And I think the solutions for what environment, regulatory environment or tax environment we should set up to promote this are to internalize the externality. Well, we want everyone who emits things that we don't want to have to pay to emit them and people that take them away get some incentive to take them away. And then we also have the problem of common good where a green grid is a common good. And so each person that has to pay for it we don't want the first user of the, the green electrons to pay for all the capital that went into that we're all going to benefit from. So that's really what makes this complicated. You have an externality on one end, you have new infrastructure, and you can't burden the first customer with all that infrastructure cost. And that's what makes policy complicated. But where, where that leaves us is we need a short-term solution. You need incentives to drive demand because when you get demand, you get off-taking, which means the infrastructure cost can be spread over more customers. So I think the IRA fits that model pretty well. It's an upfront incentive to get people to put these green elect- green electrons in or these this green hydrogen in. And then some kind of end user incentive to make sure they want to buy those green things, even though they're more expensive, either to purchase or to operate. Uh, that would be like the, the tax credit you get for, for buying an electric car in the U.S., and you don't, you don't want too many burdens on that. And we have this in the IRA, we have this 45V tax credit. And the key is if we put too many burdens on it, like you have to have additionality for the hydrogen and you have to have you know, hourly matching or something, I, I think it's too burdensome. And then you're, and you're making the first customer carry all the burden of making the grid green and making the hydrogen green. So what we want to do instead is make it simple. Yes, it will cause some customers to buy existing green hydrogen and, which, and take it from another. And some people migrate gray hydrogen. But again, you're trying to build out infrastructure that everyone will benefit from so that right. you just need to accept those problems. So I guess my general view is you need, a, you need incentives that are simple and cause people to buy, cause people to produce when the costs are high. Secondly, you need a long term, you need a carbon tax. Again, you should change those words to eliminate tax in the U.S. and use a different word. Uh, maybe in other places you can still call it, but some price on carbon that exists so that the externality moves internal. Because that will cause every economic actor to do everything they can do, innovation-wise, etc., to solve the problem that's there. And and I think there's so many great economic actors, small companies, big companies, uh, associations that are all committed to this from a moral point of view, that are having trouble doing those dual things I mentioned where do the moral thing and do the thing that makes your company economically viable at the same time. And I think those two things, having incentives for purchase in production, and then in the short run, and then the long run, having carbon tax, those two things together enable those innovators and entrepreneurs and big company runners to actually 
put those two things together, the moral thing to do and the economically viable thing to do into one strategy. It's, it's very refreshing to hear you speak about uh, internalizing negative externalities instead of referring to the green premium. Um, I, I think that's the absolute opposite way we should be looking at this because making something green is what it costs when you internalize all of the negative externalities, probably not even internalizing the positive externalities. But uh, I think to date, we've been giving out uh, basically dirty discounts as opposed to a green premium. And if you, if you position it that way, then everyone will always see the tax or the carbon cost as a penalty when actually it's the cost. It is the cost of making it that way. And it would be much more helpful, I think, if people realized that we're essentially subsidizing the pollution of, of our world by not an, internalizing those costs. Um, so it's, it's nice to hear from uh, a large corporation. <laughs> it's very, uh, it's uh, music to my ears. Um, but I think Patrick- and You probably know po politically, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine the US today that a large carbon tax goes in. But again, that that's can be said about all kinds of amazingly important policies in the US at different time junctures. I mean, you, you, you know, you could say that about almost anything that's important in yeah. our society today. So the fact that it looks difficult to do at this moment should never, never preclude us from advocating for what we know to be the right solution, which is clearly this. And, and again, it's, it's economic theory number one, which is you have to internalize externalities. I, I think the other thing uh, that, that your comments reminded me of, though, is that if we are able to internalize these these costs that we're creating, we can use existing infrastructure. We can, I mean, we can use all the things we have. Once you turn innovators and entrepreneurs and people onto, here's the real cost of things. It's amazing what engineers and other people yield. Exactly. As an engineer, of course, I always think engineers are the secret to the universe, but let's just say that all of us start coming up with different ways to do the things that we need to do cheaper, better, faster, better quality. We've done it a million times in our economy. We'll do it here too. But as long as we're working off policies which are just transferring costs from one thing to the other, we're not really labeling the thing that we want to get rid of as the cost. We're always working around a weird kind of incentive. And it, and it might, reminds me of places like the healthcare industry and stuff, which we know don't work that well. It's because they, we don't have that matching between, you know, what the cost is and what the benefit is. And so the closer we can do that, the more economic actors get engaged. Maybe shifting the kind of focus just a touch. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Cummins has a long history in, in terms of, you know, developing kind of engines, you know, developing this, this internal innovation, this strand and chain. I suppose... When you think about this kind of transition that, that we've spoken, you know, about in, in general and across a, a couple of different elements, how, how do you kind of engage the development of that supply chain for that next generation? How do you think about the skills profiles that are required and, and that transition in that respect? Um, when we when we think about, I suppose, the, the development of a hydrogen kind of system and economy. Yeah, the supply chain engagement, I think, is equally difficult to the problem Cummins has in the sense that if they don't see the incentives and long-term economics coming to place, they also hesitate on making their investments, which means you get all ready with your fuel cell, but you can't buy the components that you want. The one thing I will say, though, and, and all of us feel this, is there is a lot of activity in hydrogen today. 
a lot. Everybody kind of sees the writing on the wall. So the biggest companies, even in small innovation companies, you see them all hovering this space, all ready to go, all doing technology, investing enormous amounts of time, energy, and money, and making very little, by the way. You know, the, the general industry outside of like just those, you know, the gas companies that are just providing hydrogen that they have always provided is most people are losing money and a lot of money, not a little, a lot. So again, it may not be show up in a profit and loss statement because it might be quote investment, but it's, it's still investment without return. And the, in return, you know, horizons look long for the supply chain, for the OEMs, for everybody, but they're still doing it. And isn't that you know, wonderful. In some ways, like that, we all think, you know, we're going to do the moral thing and think that, you know, government policy is going to come around or something's going to come around here. Again, I'd like to make it move faster. I'd like to move from R&D mode to production and deployment mode at a much higher rate. I think we need to for our planet. Um, uh, and that's why I think these policies are important. But I am pleased that we are where we are. So I guess I believe that supply chain is already moving. It's not ready to make a million a year, but it's already moving and it's positioning itself from an R&D point of view. When we when we started making fuel cells, you know, we had to do a lot of the IP ourselves. We can go now to a pretty sophisticated supply base and get most of the components for a fuel cell from a good supplier. I don't mean somebody who just came up with something yesterday. I mean, high quality chemical companies, um, uh, mechanical engineering companies, etc., who can make the components of an MEA, make a whole MEA, make all the important components within a fuel cell. You know, Cummins, we are investing in components too, so we will make a lot of those things, but we also buy important pieces of those, and the supply chain is already there. So I guess I, I think the supply chain is critical, but I, I feel like it's a perfectly parallel problem to the OEM side. And once these incentives are in place and look and, and people can see when I can start getting a return, even if it's 10 years away, they will make the scaling investments that Alicia asked about and, and they will move. And, and I, I have a high level of confidence about that. And I guess one of the things that I, I wanted to ask, I think sort of ties into these sort of two elements is people are making a lot of investments. People see that this is going to be a massive market opportunity. And as you said, there's a lot of uh, thought going into how we structure all these different aspects. And I think you use the expression, Tom, you know, as an engineer, um, you know, you have the belief that engineers can solve everything. I, I guess something that's come up as a theme on a few different conferences, which I thought was a good one to bring in is, is the problem not uh, that we're lacking smart engineers or lacking smart finance people? Is the problem that we're actually just not talking about the social aspects of all of this enough? I mean, ultimately climate change to me is a tragedy of the commons question and that's a trust-based question and so is the problem when you talk about policies being too onerous or talk about not people not coming through that we have not as a broader industry done a good enough job of explaining to people why this is good why this is the right technology half it's in, and, and not just telling them listening back and i do wonder if that's part of the challenge you know you see in these debates that often so engineering based it's what's the thermodynamic efficiency of this versus that my model tells me that i we should do this my model tells me we should do that it's not about people saying what do i want what do i need how am i going to use it and i just yeah i just thought i'd pick up on that theme and just say you know yeah. even amongst your staff it's about people so how do you think about that you know you guys are a product-based company the customer's everything how do you combine those aspects together i'm glad you asked you know jennifer rumsey again demonstrating her amazing leadership skills she put she put that as kind of her theme as a ceo is to bring the people back the humans back into our mission statement about 
solving the world's problems, you know, and trying to make the economy go. She she really emphasizes putting the people back in the center. So I think you're onto something there. How do you talk about this in a way that people say, oh, yeah, that's worth it to me? And I see that both in economic justice terms, like who pays for all these transitions and how do we how do we solve that problem? But I also think of it in terms of if we don't move, who pays? And and I think both of those things are important to talk about. If we don't move on this, what happens next? And and hold our leaders accountable, both industry and politicians. If we do what you said, if we don't worry about, if we say cook stoves have to remain gas because it's we don't like to, too expensive to change, what happens? If we stay with fossil fuels, what happens then? And I think just saying that, you know, liberals are too woke or conservatives are too, you know, conservative, I don't think solves our problem. We have to talk about what the consequences are to the people that are affected. So I think I really agree with that. I I just did want to add, though, that in my hierarchy, climate change is the existential one. And so we have to address it. I, I do think we need economic justice at every step. I do think we need to solve wealth gaps. I do, and that's wealth gaps within countries and wealth gaps across countries, because otherwise we, you know, we will have big problems down the road. But this problem is right in front of us. And when I hear from politicians and policymakers and companies, everybody who says, well, we can't really move here until we solve that problem. And we can't really do this unless we know. And a good example would be we can't possibly put carbon tax on because that's going to affect poor people. I'm saying like, they're going to die anyway when the climate makes their house inhospitable. We have to move now. Like you have to solve this problem and you're moving way too slowly to, in order. So I guess the, the perfect is becoming the enemy of the good. You have to move on carbon. So I guess I do have a primacy. Like I, I do want to make sure we talk to everybody and get everybody engaged in the right way, but we got it. We, we need to move on finding solutions and deploying solutions. And if some of them create inequity, Solve the inequity in the best way you know how right now. Move, you know, change tax incentives, provide subsidy, do what you need to do. But you're waiting for the perfect balance of subsidy. And I, and I feel like when we wait, we empower people who have, think they have, they're, they're, who, they're kind of the people, the dream sellers, the people that say, well, you know, if you buy this battery truck, it's going to solve every problem ever. You know, that's not going to be the way we're going to we're going to have trade offs. We're going to have to do things like that, that make you know, that, that aren't always easy. And we got to move anyway. Right. And, and every market is a different solution. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the trade offs. That, that's exactly. Yeah. Um, and and as you as you pointed out, people are already experiencing climate injustice. Uh, if we do if business as usual, leads us to a place of much higher costs uh, to, to society overall, but specifically to the most um, uh, vulnerable um, who are already suffering from it. But it, I just want to say it was really lovely to have you on. You've been a wonderful guest. And, you know, I know Chris there's thinking CEO goals in his head right now because uh, you're, you're really provide a model to, to really look up to. I really appreciate you doing this. It's very kind. At least I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm very, it's very kind of you. And I really appreciate you, you that you guys are doing this podcast. It was my honor to speak with you. Alicia, this is, uh, we're sort of digesting, I think, after the incredible conversation that we had with Tom. 
Um, I thought, uh, you know, very inspiring, passionate man. Uh, you know, you very kindly and generously brought him onto the show and introduced him. So I wanted to kind of almost throw across to you to start us off. What did you think? I mean, I guess you probably weren't surprised or were you? What was your takeaway from that discussion? I mean, I'm going to throw it right back at you because I, I was not surprised. I, I know Tom pretty well because he was the chairman of Hydrogen Council. And I was lucky enough to be seated next to him for some five-hour dinner where you really get to find out everything about the person. But I did see real twinkle in your eyes when he talked. I mean, it was definitely CEO goals. <laughs> you, you can see he is such a great person and just like an incredible manager. So um, I, I saw it on your face. I don't know about Patrick because Patrick uh, obviously doesn't ever show us his face. But um, <laughs> despite being so good looking. Well, I think what I find very funny is when there's an investor or a client, miraculously, the video does work. So um, I think it's just a very cunning ploy. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to crib back to, my no- to some of my sort of more detailed notes, because as you say, I kind of was a bit in awe. And this is part of the problem is that when you're listening to someone and you're really in rapture, you sort of go, oh, crap, I've yeah. got to write notes so I can come back to them on it. Um, no, I... I think there's a couple of things that are interesting. I think, firstly, um, it's probably gone out of fashion a little bit for people to run companies that they've been in, they've actually worked for for a long time. And I think his background is someone who kind of came from, you know, he did engineering and then did an MBA and then said, actually, I want to go and I want to work on the shop floor. And then the fact that they let him and gave him that experience, yeah. I think is is quite unique. I don't think that many leaders have that. And I think understanding of how the physical world is actually, like how physical things are actually made and the process by which they're made is so critical to the energy transition. And I think it's so poorly understood. Um, you know, we've got on the protein advisory board, Sir John Rose from Rolls-Royce. And I think actually there's a lot of learnings from that manufacturing sector that come through in the way that we need to think about not just how we design technology but how we design projects how we think about infrastructure you know our chief assets yeah. and engineering officer john constable's xtp group electrolyzer manufacturer you talk to him and you realize the scale of issues it is frankly um incredible so i thought that that was something that stuck out to me just as a person i, I think in terms of content um, you know, the scale of Cummins, I think people just don't appreciate. And I think it's one of these beer myths that behind mm-hmm. the scenes in the corporate world, more people are familiar with, but it's not a consumer facing brand in the same way as a, exactly. a Mercedes is or, a, I don't know, a Volvo or, or whatever. Um, but actually their impact on the engine world and in a number of other sectors is, is really quite astonishing. I, I thought it was interesting, the nuance in the branding between Accelerator and Cummins. I still think that is an interesting uh, space and I confess I had always thought when they bought Hydrogenics, which of course is now the the heart of what is the Accelera brand, which is the the ultimately the pen technology both for the fuel cell and the electrolyzer side. I confess I had always thought yeah. that was because they wanted to have the IP for the pen fuel cell as a hedging on the basis that we don't know where the internal combustion engine market was going to go. They needed to have a fuel cell offering, and they couldn't effectively sell off the IP around the electrolysis business without jeopardizing the IP around the fuel cell business. So they had to own all of it, but then they were sort of stuck with this electrolyzer bit that they didn't really know what to do with. That was always my thinking, because obviously Air Air Key, for those keen sort of history nerds will also be aware, has been an investor 
as well in hydrogenics, and I think even still to this day has some form of residual shareholding, although I confess I don't know all the details around that. Uh, so that's kind of what I'd assumed. He didn't really touch on that. Um, we didn't push him especially hard, but I think uh, it's still interesting to me the fact that there are two separate brands, and at one point in the future, will they cross over and merge or won't they? Is an interesting question still to me. And again, probably a final reflection on that was we are seeing a very different US political landscape to European landscape. And we've talked about that actually offline before Alicia, Yumi and Patrick and a number of others. I do wonder whether even though Tom didn't say it, there is an element here of playing to different constituencies and being able to use the Cummins brand as this kind of all American, still fossil fuel, kind of quite safe for Republicans but then to turn around to the Democrats and go, here is the Accelera brand. And, and by the way, I don't have a problem with that per se, if it gets you to where it needs to get you to. But it, it, I did wonder whether there is also an element of, of that, being able to use the two brands and position them and give them different identities. I mean, I would say, first of all, given the name of the company, it's it's not the greatest name. So I can see no. where you might want to roll <laughs> off with a new name. I mean, that, that, there's just that, right? Like That's like a basic. But then um, I think you're right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Tom really cares about the employees. That's the people are actually the thing that he's most worried about. And that's what kept him up at night, you know, over 30 years. And no matter who's in power, whoever is president, whoever is uh, in Congress, they have a lot of ways to help or harm his company and his employees. And I think he has to, to walk the middle of the line because otherwise it's jeopardizing a, a company and, and people and their families. And it's just a sad fact that, you know, in our opinion, and we can't ascribe this to him because he's still walking the line. Um, but it's it's sad that there is, um, you know, such an atrocious party out there that is like anti-environment um, that, you know, you have to still cater to. But I think you hit the nail on the head, though, in a way that I think is important, which is that, he, it, it, that maybe yeah. something we don't talk about enough is that this tightrope act for big businesses of needing to, of wanting to lead. And I genuinely think you see, you know, people couldn't see him in the interview. You don't even hear the thing about podcasts opposed to sort of the YouTube videos that some people do. But, um, you know, you can, you yeah. can see when you talk to him the passion, like he really cares about sustainability and the fact that he has to walk this, this tightrope, exactly as you say, because he has to manage this incredible brand, all these jobs, not just his direct jobs in, in the company, but the supply chain, the ecosystem, all those other elements. I mean, exactly. when I speak to the colleagues in Cummins UK, it's quite interesting talking to them about, you know, there are 5,000 jobs associated with Cummins engines outside of Darlington. You know, so, uh, Darlington is, uh, for those who are less familiar with the UK, is uh, near Teesside. It's also the home of the UK Treasury up there and the UK's um, hydrogen hub up there. And, you know, that's a lot of very skilled jobs in an area which actually, you know, uh, has suffered a lot from the result of deindustrialization of the UK and actually protecting those jobs, preserving them is really important. So you kind of see visually where these things start to matter. And there's a lot of really good innovation that they do. But as you say, it's this tightrope balancing between the transitions at different paces yeah. different, and different geographies too, which is something we have touched on in previous episodes because what works for the Western world is not what works everywhere else. And Cummins engines are not just sold in the US, they, they go all over the world. 
I, that that's right. And then also, you know, I think he's based in Indiana, you know, grew up in California. California is like an entirely different country from the rest of the United States. I mean, it, <laughs> it has completely different rules, even, you know, it, when it comes to um, the environment and whatnot. So it, there's just a lot of different um, groups of people that he has to work with. And, uh, you know, you can't just decide to not engage. Um, because he's, he really has people he has to take care of. Now there's a uh, wonderful CEO who he thinks is amazing and she just she's wonderful and she has that same type of empathy and responsibility for the uh, all of the employees. So I think he's he's he can sleep now at night. <laughs> so I think that's a little bit of a refreshing thing for him. I think also he did have a point that, when you're trying to get new talent, young people, people like us, uh, people who don't want to go work for, you know, Exxon ever, like it's just never going to happen. He realizes that should be a separate company because those people might want to have, you know, a completely separate, different company that is only doing hydrogen, that is only doing decarbonization. And also, I mean, who knows, maybe it's a spinoff idea as well. You do wonder, like, what are you going to do with these oil and gas companies that are listed that get rewarded by the market when they say green things sometimes, and then they get rewarded by the market when they do terrible non-green things other times? You almost want to just divide them and just have the green part be a separate company so it can thrive on its own and not get held down. I mean, I don't even know what's best for the world. Well, it's difficult, right? Because the problem is this led to the divestment campaign and people like Anglo-American, right? I mean, you know, I remember there was a, there's a podcast called Responsible Investing and one of the guys there is now the uh, BlackRock ESG lead for UK. Um, uh, and it was, it's an interesting, a guy called David, and it's an interesting, it was interesting debate. So they were saying, you know, Anglo-American wanted to be energy transition driven. So they spun off the coal business to have these two separate identities and they had that they had this large shareholding in the coal business and they had their ones they could be free but of course what happens is the minute spun off a separate business everyone goes well coal is still quite profitable in the world and actually there's a lot of opportunities and a couple of less ethical funds that didn't really care so much about sustainability and governance were like oh my god these are great coal assets and there's all this governance and compliance and regulation in ESG that Anglo put on it. And if we get rid of all of that, we can make it so much more profitable. And, you know, you go, well, that is definitely not the point. So, I mean, there is a so, so there is a danger with these things being spun off. And I'm not saying, by the way, I don't understand what you're saying because you're absolutely right. You know, uh, I, I would I would resign tomorrow rather than work for one of the oil majors. Um you know, and I, I've made that very clear. We have articles in our company that prohibit sale to an oil and gas company uh, in proteins articles. So, I mean, it's a, it, it is a, uh, it is a big issue for me and for a lot of my employees and indeed a lot of my clients. But at some point, they are going to have to transition. So, how do you do that? No, it's true, and there are unintended consequences. I mean, the other perfect example is all of the majors selling off of their their really like not so great. Uh, gas assets that were flaring. And so now instead of having a public company that people can monitor and can actually watch to see if they're flaring, it's now these tiny little companies that are doing terrible pollution and nobody is paying attention to them and they aren't held to a higher standard because they're so small. So, I mean, it is, it's difficult. Well, but I, but I completely agree, but this is actually, this was probably the one bit actually that I did disagree with Tom on which was that um, we were talking about the IRA 
and uh, in the US or the, or the IRA. I think we at one point we call it the IRA, so maybe we go back to that, the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's do IRA. Uh, let's do IRA. Um, so uh, he was talking about the IRA and he said, um, you know, my concern is that the regulation is a bit too onerous on this and I don't think it's appropriate that we do hourly matching at this point. Let's just get it going. And I remember hearing these same arguments in the UK and I think they're wrong. And I think they're wrong for the reasons that you're starting to allude to now, which is that, you know, we have to set a standard that everyone has to follow. And the reality is that if you don't get the standard right at the beginning, you spend the rest of your time fighting desperately because it's always going to be hard. It's always going to be expensive. It's always going to be complicated, but it is where we have to get to. And we don't have the luxury of time to try and get there. And I think, you know, especially for the public who is ultimately by one mechanism or another going to be the one that pays for this, either through higher taxes or through higher products, uh, cost of products that they pay for, you know, or reduced salaries or whatever. The public is going to pay for this in some way in the energy transition because we are the public and the money has to come from from us. Right. But if we don't transition, the public is going to pay for it, too. So I agree. But then the public have to see, in my view, that the energy transition and the sacrifice is actually delivering something that is really decarbonizing you know is really offsetting co2 and if you say i'm running a massive green hydrogen plant in the middle of a state where the grid is 60 percent coal but i'm buying a ppa from oklahoma and i don't even it doesn't even match in real time you know the wind is blowing in oklahoma at a completely different time to when you're taking power from the grid you know it's not clear at all that actually all that subsidy is actually delivering what it wants and if the public don't see that benefit they're rightly going to say well why am i suffering and paying more and impacting my quality of life granted i know i need to do it but i can't see the link and it might be a link because you might still be putting more renewables on the grid but the link is not tangible and that's where i think i complain so much about the uk because the uk drives me mad absolutely mad i just finished an event this evening uk energy minister was speaking at um the conservative energy network event tonight um and you know, basically said carbon capture is a five trillion pound UK opportunity. It's absolutely fantastic for UK PLC. And it's outrageous that we're not doing more oil and gas licensing because our oil and gas is the lowest CO2 in the rest of the world. And unlike Labour, we, we don't get rid of those jobs. I mean, it's just just ridiculous. But, you know, it, it, it is it is like interesting the mentality. And the one thing I think the UK have got right is that on green hydrogen in the UK to qualify as low carbon hydrogen, you have to demonstrate your CO2 intensity on a half hourly basis from day one. It is the most onerous regime in the world, but it is right. And you can stand up as a green hydrogen producer and say, my fuel that I am giving to you has this level of CO2, which is among the lowest of any fuel anywhere in the world, bar none. And actually, ironically, is probably more green and evidenceably more green than direct electrification in a lot of the UK. Because I can sign a green PPA, but for five days of the year, there might be no sun and there might be no wind. And I'm not buffering that with batteries in the UK. I'm running gas or I'm running coal. But if I've got green hydrogen produced that meets the low carbon hydrogen standard, it has to be green. So ironically, the only way you can evidence is there. And I think that's where he was wrong. But I'm not going to beat him up too much about that. But I just think that point of it's too hard. I just think we need to do something simpler. I have some sympathy with, but we have to get it right now. If we don't get it right at the beginning, it's always going to be hard. I, I agree with you to an extent. I, I do think that the two markets are different. Um, and I, I definitely, 
the don't let the great be the enemy of the good is definitely something we have to keep in mind because we don't want to be arguing about this for two more years or three more years. So I, I do see the point, like maybe it won't be perfect. And, and who knows what other things that people are upset about in the United States, because it, it, the U S is just not as interested in the environment as Europe and the UK. So you're dealing with a population, half of which want to pollute on purpose, like as a statement, and half of which, you know, are empathetic and are, are worried about the environment, but maybe they're still driving giant cars and they're still doing a lot of things that aren't great for the environment. So, I mean, I think it's a very different market. So you have to meet people where they are a little bit. And uh, if you want to get something done, you're going to, to not be totally pleased 100% with whatever uh, legislation or agreements you have. That's anywhere. But I think it's a much more uphill battle in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. or Europe. So I, I would give him a little bit more leeway. And also just I think he knows what he's doing and, and is probably coming across things that uh, we can't imagine. <laughs> the bigger problems. Yeah, look, and don't get me wrong. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of saying there was one thing, right? That is my one thing. But I think that probably is almost another. Yeah, I, I know you in love terms of, in, terms of my, in terms of my sort of, you know, probably my final comments on this, and I'd be interested in yours, but my final comments on that episode would be, you know, I think the complexity and scale of the transition is always something that I think is quite overwhelming for a lot of people. I think in some ways it's almost even more overwhelming when you are a CEO of a company like that, because in some ways, politicians, you have a very short cycle of time. There's a large number of you. The, the way decisions are made and the process of decision-making is highly convoluted and actually attributing success and attributing gains quite difficult to government. This is half the problem with energy and infrastructure is you're usually not there long enough to see the benefits of the things that you do. And you're very rarely given credit for the benefit of the things you do. Um, you know, whereas actually in a lot of these companies, you know, people like Tom Lance have been around for a long time, you know, were, were in post and will remain in post for a long time. And so if they get it right or they get it wrong, their legacy is going to be quite clear. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, an example of where it did go wrong, which is GE. And a book that I you know, recently read, which is uh, Power Failure, which is the history of GE, you know, and reading about Jeff Immelt and reading about, you know, Jack Welch and, you know, how long they were there and what they did and the institutional impact of those leaders. You do get an appreciation for how heavy the crown weighs on, you know, people who lead these types of mammoth businesses that are icons and staples of industry that employ all these people, create all these jobs. And so handling the energy transition where there is all this uncertainty, all this pressure, all this need with all this desire to do good and balancing that against all these other stakeholders, which are all these different competing political groups that are totally different in one state of the US to another state, let alone other countries. And then investors who, again, are coming from all over the place. They might be, you know, engine one type activist investors who are like, I want you to go and be more sustainable all the way through to New York hedge funds who are like, kill the planet, just give me an extra dollar on my returns, you know, and everything in between. So, uh, you know, I think you just have to sort of feel an immense level of respect and probably the hardest thing that uh, I think I really appreciated is, is being able to look them in the eye and realise that that's what they're trying to do. And I think that was why I felt very privileged to be able to do that uh, in this particular interview. And um, if listeners haven't had a chance to meet Tom, I can only really strongly recommend that you find an opportunity to do so or listen to him live because, um, yeah, he's a very, very inspiring and passionate leader. I don't know, let's see if you want to tell me I'm all wrong, add, disagree. <laughs> you're, you're, 
how can I disagree with you? You you think he's a wonderful guy? Um, no, I I wouldn't compare him to Jack Welch. <laughs> I don't think Jack Welch had very much empathy for his employees or anyone in his organization. But I, the the role of the CEO of a large company is just never ending. And that part of it is, you know, is clear across whether you're a bad leader or a good leader. But I think it's so much more rare that you have someone like Tom, who is such a good leader and who carries that weight for so long. Um, and, and, you know, really, he got into hydrogen pretty early. Like he, it's, it's, it wasn't two years ago. He became the chairman of Hydrogen Council two years ago, but, you know, he got into it um, pretty early and made that decision to go into that direction, um, which was very conscious and very deliberate and, and you know, put a lot of resources into it and has, has really moved, uh, you know, big in a big way. And that's his legacy. I mean, that he, and that's the legacy he wants to leave, you know. So I, I think and then I think that's great. And of course, he's still there as, as the chairman. So let's not act like he packed his bags and went away. But <laughs> no, very <laughs> he, much not. I think he can just go sleep at night. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I think I think we're on the same page. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think um, all that to say is another fantastic episode. We've got um, a couple more interesting episodes lined up this summer before we go into recess. So uh, stay tuned for those. Um, and in the meantime, if there's anyone you think we've missed, um, please get in touch with us because uh, I'm sure there are people we miss and there's always great people we could and should have on the show. And if anyone knows anyone that's working on something weird or wonderful or anyone in government that's doing anything weird or wonderful, please get in touch and we'd be delighted to hear from you. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.